So my guest today is a uh, comedian and activist and author. He did something that was uh, not an easy thing to do back in 2016, I believe it was, when he went to the Middle East and he did this tour where it sold out 27 different places, Dubai, Beirut, Cairo, Kuwait, Amman, in front of uh, the king and the queen of Jordan. And we had him on four years ago. We were putting an annual convention together in Las Vegas. We had, I don't know, four or 5,000 people there. And we brought him on and... Uh, he, I mean, the crowd fell in love with him immediately. When this guy's on stage, he lights up. But at the same time, the reason why I wanted to bring him on, I respect his opinion. I think when a country like us is in a situation that it's at, sometimes we need comedians. Comedians can play the role of a synergist to kind of lighten the load and get us to say, listen, can we all just get along? Maz Gibrani, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Thank you for having me, Patrick. I appreciate you having me on. Actually, that tour you mentioned was uh, the Axis of Evil comedy tour. It was in 2007. I appreciate oh, seven. you. Yeah, I know. I, it's good because as I'm getting older, I like that you kind of pushed it up a little. So now I felt younger for a second. I was, but... trying, to, I tr I was trying to make you younger, but uh, <laughs> 2007. So so the talk you gave on TED, uh, the TEDx, the one that's got 15, 20 million views, was that 07? No, that one was, I believe, in 08 or 09. So the, okay. the story Got goes, it. in 07, we went with the Axis of Evil comedy tour. That was me and three other Middle Eastern American comedians. And we were the first group of guys who came out on Comedy Central who were from our part of the world doing stand-up. And I always say it was the first time you saw Middle Easterners on American television and we weren't killed. We were just telling jokes. And um, so that tour took us to the Middle East and it was amazing. Like you just said, we got we got a chance to do 27 shows over 30 days. The King of Jordan showed up at one of the shows right. and that set us off. And then after that, we kept going back. And the TED Talk that you're talking about that has something like 15 million views happened a couple years later in Doha, Qatar, which I'm sure you've been to. Yes, it's a beautiful it's a smaller version of, let's say, Dubai, but it's still beautiful state of the art. And uh, and that what I love about that TED talk is not just the fact that, oh, I got to go, got a chance to go do this TED talk, but the fact that they did it in Doha. So when they go to the audience, you see people dressed in the traditional Arab garb and they're laughing. And to me, that is a message that I think we should share around the world that people from that part of the world love to laugh just like anywhere else. And by the way, you were not holding back. I mean, you, you were, you were. <laughs> You were taking shots at everybody, and it was the the, the best seven minutes of comedy, uh, some of the best seven minutes of comedy that's out there. I enjoyed watching it, but he, here's a simple question for you. You're smart. You're eloquent. You're very well-spoken. You have a great processor. You're witty. How do you, as an Iranian, not become a doctor, a lawyer, or a dentist, or an engineer? How do you do this? How do you become a comedian? Patrick, I tell you, as soon as you said smart, witty, all that stuff, I was ready to just hang up and say, I'm one, I'm done, I'm out of here. No, you know, man, uh, you know, our parents did not want this. I always, I jokingly say, I say, when I first did this, I disappointed my dad, I disappointed my mom, I disappointed the entire Iranian community 
because, you know, I would hear them talking behind our backs and they all thought that this was going to be some big disappointment. And I jokingly say that we would go to parties and I could overhear people going, did you hear about Joe Brani's son? He's almost a drug dealer because to them, comedy may as well just be drug dealing, you know, and um, 23 years ago when I started doing this, Patrick, uh, there were not other Iranian Americans doing it. Um, not to say that it was anything that I was groundbreaking. It was just that it was the thing that was groundbreaking for me was doing what I love to do. Because you know how it is. You run into fellow Iranian Americans or fellow immigrants, kids of immigrants, whether they're Indian or Chinese or whatever. And if they're not doing lawyer, doctor, engineer, that's that's in a way it's going, oh, wow, you went against the norm. And so for me, what happened was my parents wanted me to be a lawyer, be a lawyer, be a lawyer, be a lawyer. And I didn't want to be a lawyer. Since I was 12 years old, I was on stage. I love being on stage. I wanted to be like Eddie Murphy. I did plays. I was always on stage. And I'll be honest with you, because of my parents pushing me when I was in my mid-20s, mm-hmm. it took me till I was 26 years old when I had the light bulb moment. And I go, you live once. So you got to live for you. You got to do what you love doing and make yourself happy. Once you make yourself happy, then you can make those around you happy. And then if you're really lucky, you can make those who don't know you happy. That's not so easy that's, to do. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. not only not easy to do, it's tough to be aware of it, especially when you're younger, because it's such a, and you know, the Middle Eastern culture is a very pressured type of an environment. You know, it's not like it's a, a, a judgmental type of an environment, not in a negative way. It's just a, high standard, high expectation, and you kind of want to be pressured to deliver for the people you love the most. But so at 12 years old, you're following Eddie Murphy. You kind of want to be the next Eddie Murphy. If I'm in high school with you at 14, 15 years old, who was Maz at 14 or 15? At 14, 15, you know, I've always been this person who I get along with everybody. So I, I love sports. So I played soccer and I played baseball. So I had my friends that were the jocks. I loved being on stage. So I had friends who were the drama friends, right? I was a, I, I was always nice to people. I don't, I don't think I got in any fights in high school. So I had friends that were from all walks of life. And I personally, the reason I became a comedian was because I was a fan of comedy. So my closest friends were funny. So I love being around these guys. And I'll be honest with you, Patrick, there's people that I grew up with that were definitely funnier than me, but they just didn't have the vision or the drive to end up doing what I ended up doing. Because I knew from a young age, I go, I wanna be yeah. on that stage, in that on that screen, that's what I wanna do. So I was able to get to where I am because I knew where I wanted to go. So you said 23 years ago, 1998, is that kind of when you first started? Is that is that your? Yeah, so up, up until then I was doing plays, I was keeping my toe in the water while I was trying to keep my parents happy. So I was gonna go be a lawyer, uh, and then while I was in uh, college, my junior year, I went and studied abroad in Italy for one year. And I tell every young person, I go, if you can go study abroad, go, get out of here, go to another country, experience it. You grow exponentially. It's one of the best years of your life. But while I was there, I go, oh, there was a professor. I like what he was doing. So I said, maybe I'll come back and become a professor. So I come back and tell my parents, I go, I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a professor of political science. And right there, my mom goes, what are you talking wow. about? Like, yeah, my mom goes, there's no money in being a professor. Yeah. I go, mom, how do you know about the market for professors? You don't know what you're talking about. So anyway, <laughs> started grad school to get my PhD in poli sci. While I was there, I started doing plays again. 
And so I always had my toes in it, always had my toes in it. And then again, what, what, what I was telling you, um, I eventually dropped out of grad school, went to an advertising agency and just got a job as an assistant at the advertising agency, but still kept doing plays. So I'm doing the play uh, at that time and I have a video of the play and I'm in the ad agency making a copy of the video for the other actors in our play. And while I'm doing that, there was a guy by the name of Joe Ryan. Now, Joe was older than me. He was in his 60s at the time. He was a really nice guy, very always, very uh, um, supportive. And he goes, hey, Maz, you're funny. Have you ever thought about getting into acting and comedy? I go, Joe, throughout my life, I've wanted to do it. My parents kept pushing me in another direction. I said, you know, in the next few years, I may go for it. And he goes, let me talk to you. He takes me into his office. He sits me down. He says, Maz, listen to me. I'm in my 60s. And he goes, when I was in my 20s, I wanted to do some things. And he goes, I never got around to doing it. Wow. So he goes, if you really want to do it, you got to go for it. And that was another light bulb moment that Joe Ryan gave me. Great and counsel. That's it. And that moment was then I, I enrolled in, in comedy classes and I started going. And that was, again, 1998. I, just, I, I, I went to my boss. I said, listen, man. I know I'm working for you at the ad agency, but now my priority of, in my life is going to be comedy and acting. So if you want me to quit, I can quit. And he said, no, you can stay until you get stuff. But that was the light bulb moment, 1998, Joe Ryan, and the rest was history. So so political science, was that because that's the route to being a lawyer or because you had interest in politics? No, it was more the route to being a lawyer. I and, and, and for me, I'll be honest, once I signed up for that, I really found it very interesting because you start learning history. You start learning about how government works. You start learning a lot about, about a lot of stuff. And it opens your eyes. You know, as an Iranian-American, I grew up in, in America trying to avoid my history and my background of Iranian because I wanted to blend in with all my American ki- uh, friends. You know, whenever my parents would show up with their thick Persian accents, I was like, oh, no. They're going to give away the fact that I'm Iranian and my friends are going to know that I'm not American. But once I went to college and I started studying stuff, I go, oh, my God, America had a hand in overthrowing a democratically elected leader in Iran. And, you know, you start learning the history of what got us where we are. And I think it's good because especially nowadays, you know, we forget history. And if we don't remember history, we are going to repeat the errors and the mistakes that we've made in our past. And so I, I think it was a, um, a, a, a a good major for me to, to take. It's interesting what you just said. America had a hand in overthrowing a democratic leader uh, in Iran. We'll get to that here in a minute as well, because I kind of want to see some of your thoughts there, because I know behind uh, uh, every comedian I sit with or I speak with, the deeper you go, Listen, every one of them has a glimpse of genius. It's it's not easy to be a comedian. Comedian is not like to be able to have the second you have to come up and be witty and, come, you know, it's not an easy job to do. But let me let me ask you one question about 98 to 2008 to 2015 to 2021. How much has the industry of comedy changed in that 23 years? Well, the industry's changed a lot. And, and it's interesting because I have young people asking me questions sometimes. How do I get started? What do I do? The basics are still there. It's like if you watch, let's say, baseball, you know, the, 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 and you ask a baseball player, they say, yeah, you got to really get good with your swing and you got to work on your infield and you got to work on your throat. You know, the basics are still there. And the yeah. basics for comedy, I tell everybody, if you want to be a stand-up comedian, the basics are 
Get on stage as much as you can and write as much as you can. And what I mean by that is when I say get on stage as much as you can, that means you got to get on stage five, maybe 10 times a week and you do any number of minutes. Like some clubs will say, oh, you get three minutes when you start out. They might say you get three minutes, you get five minutes, you get 10 minutes. Now you get 20 minutes, but you got to do all of that. And, and when I say write as much as you can, you don't want to be in this business for 20 years and be doing jokes that you did 20 years ago because people are going to lose interest. And also you as a human being are going to grow. So I have jokes from my first solo special. It was called Brown and Friendly in 2008. That's when my son was born. So I have jokes of my son as a baby. Now my son is 13. But if I'm on stage doing jokes about my son as a baby and I'm still doing I feel like a fraud. So get on stage as much as you can, write as much as you can. However, the way the industry has changed is now more than ever, you can be in control of your own destiny. Because when I started, you had to go get this. There was a booklet with all the agent names. Hopefully an agent sees you, get into a club. Maybe somebody sees you. You move up the the ladder of the club, et cetera, et cetera. That's how there was no social media. Even MySpace was maybe new or hadn't even started yet. But now you can end up in any social media format that you choose to. You can go and get a fan base. I know comedians right now who don't have that many years under their belt as comedians, but they ended up on, let's say, Clubhouse or on TikTok or on one of these things. And they ended up with 100,000, 500,000, a million followers. The clubs are booking them. So these guys have grown their own business. Now they need to grow into their, into the level of delivering in the business. Yeah. Because you could have the fans, but if you don't have the years under your belt, they're going to come see you live. And about 30 minutes in, you're going to be out of material. And they're going to go, where's the other half an hour of the show? Yeah, and 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 pros catch that fairly quickly. You're gonna you, you can probably tell when somebody is winging it and they haven't really prepared for it. Uh, I'm assuming when you when you're in the space well, like you, not just us, the audience can tell. So the audience shows up. Listen, the fact is the audience sees you. This was happening early on when that show um, Last Comic Standing was happening. Sometimes you'd have comedians who had less experience, but they were winning on that show and so audience members would tune in on nbc and see a comedian do three minutes and go oh i love this guy and then they go see him live and they realize oh he doesn't have more than the three minutes or more than 20 minutes or 30 minutes so it's disappointing to the audience member as well comedy is a is a is a art form where you really can't fake it and you can't you very rarely see a young success in comedy in music you could be 15 years old and have the voice of an angel and have a producer find you and say, let's go make music. And you could be 16 years old yeah. and just be a superstar. In stand-up comedy, you got to put in five to 10 years before you really start finding your own point of view. Stand-up comedy is about having a point of view. It's about delivering that point of view. And very rarely throughout our history have we seen really young successes. Eddie Murphy, Dave Chappelle. Chappelle started at the age of 14. So by the time he's 21, he's already hitting it, right? So but it's a rare thing. Usually with comedians, you got to you get to your mid 20s, early 30s before you start seeing some success because listen, Patrick, when you first start out in stand up, you're off stage you and I are talking. When I first start out in stand up, when I go on stage, you would see 
the person emulating the hero, their comedy hero. So I'd be on stage trying to be like Eddie Murphy. I'd right. be on stage trying to be like Richard Pryor. Sure. But the longer you spend on stage and and finding your voice, the closer the person off stage becomes to the person on stage. And eventually what ends up happening is that's how some of my writing happens because I get so comfortable with who I am on stage that I'll be off stage talking to a friend of mine about something that happened and without even trying, I'm writing my material. That makes because sense. Because I'm expressing my opinion off stage the same way I would on stage. And then so do you get off right off the bat and say, shit, I just said a joke I've never said before. Let me write it down so I can remember. Are you doing Absolutely. that? Absolutely. I got do that. It, or it. what I do is I often record my sets on stage. And so what will happen is, especially in L.A., in L.A., we do uh, continuous comedy, which means because you're in L.A. or New York where you have you know, a, a, all headliners on a lineup at the comedy store or the Laugh Factory or the comedy cellar, all these places, you're going to see headliner after headliner after headliner. And we each do 15 to 20 minutes. Well, in that 15 to 20 minutes, I say to myself, OK, I'm going to do. 10 minutes of material that I've done before and five minutes of newer stuff to try it out. I'm going to sprinkle it in. So what will happen is I'm recording it in case the stuff that I sprinkle in works. Then I go back and I listen to it. I go, oh, that worked that way. Great. Oh, don't forget to add this little element to that joke. So that's how it's working. So I'm listening. I'm, I'm recording it all the time on my iPhone. Makes sense. You know, in, in Hollywood, what do they call a, a triathlete, you know, triple thread, you can dance, you can act, you can sing. What is a triple thread in comedy? Is there such a thing as a triple thread or no? I mean, comedy, I was I compare comedy to boxing because in boxing, you can do the heavy bag, you do the speed bag, you can shadow box, you can, you know, jump rope. There's so many different things. You can get better at endurance, you can get better at, you know, your agility. There's so many different places in boxing that you can work out and get better and better at similarly with comedy there's so many different facets to it you you can become a better writer by writing and writing and writing you can become more charismatic on stage by just getting on stage getting more and more comfortable you can get better at crowd work crowd work to me is the close is very similar to boxing because you're throwing something out and they're throwing something back and you got to react off of that and that, that's a muscle you got to exercise. For me, early on in my career, when I became a regular at the comedy store, Mitzi Shore, who owned the comedy store, made me a regular. And what that meant was throughout the week, they would put you up on their lineup. And since I was new, they weren't going to give me the best spot of the night. They were going to give me the last spot of the night. So I'd end up on stage at 1.30 in the morning when the club's going to close at 2.00. And at 1.30 in the morning, you can't go up and just start doing your act and say, oh, my girlfriend broke up with me. And no, 1.30 in the morning, it's you and five people in the audience. So you just start talking to them. You go, why are you guys here? Where are you from? You're from Sweden? What's that like? And that conversation and coming back and forth, you're working out this muscle so that later on down the line, when you're in front of a thousand people and you're doing a show and a lady gets up in the middle of your act and starts to go to the bathroom, you're going to you're going to you're going to be like, hey, where are you going and start talking to her? And the crowd's going to love it because, you know, you're on it. And I actually compare that a little bit to surfing as well, which is when we start doing crowd work, it's like surfing. If you catch a good wave, you know, in surfing, I think the what, what they do in surfing is they're in the moment because you're that wave's coming. You catch it. You're on there. I, I, I guarantee you there's no surfer on a surfboard 
who's thinking about their taxes, thinking about their, you know, oh, did I leave the, did I leave the iron on? No, that surfer's in the tube mm-hmm. and going, I got to get through this. Similarly with stand-up, if you're doing crowd work and you catch that wave, sometimes, Patrick, I'll say things that I didn't even think about. My, inst- my, my instinct's just saying it. And then the laugh comes and I go, what did I just say? And I go, oh, okay, that's cool. Because I'm in the moment, you know? Yeah, so so that's that's interesting. So better writer, better on stage, crowd work. I can see that. Uh, which of those three is the hardest one to learn? Is it is it the writer? Uh, is it better on stage? Like, you know, I guess some people learn through watching somebody and mimicking their body language and how they move and how fast they run and certain things they do. From your experience for comedy, which has been the hardest to duplicate? Well, for me, I'll be honest, since I started doing plays at the age of 12, I got into the, the junior high school musical and they taught us how to stand on a stage. One of the things a lot of actors don't realize when you're on stage, you got to open your body to the audience. You got to make sure they can see you. And similarly, when you do stand up, you got to make sure the audience can see your face. I've seen comedians show up, they pull their hat down over their eyes and you can't even see their expression. So they're not thinking about that stuff. So there's a stage presence. For me, standing on stage was the easiest part. From day one, being on stage was fine. Having energy on stage was fine. For me, the writing was the hardest because I always thought, well, what am I going to write about? How do you write? How do you know the rhythm of writing? And it took me a while, but eventually you start realizing, A, you got to write what you know because you're the only one who knows that experience. So whatever that is, uh, you know, and it's my point of view. Listen, if I'm doing a joke about being a dad, there might be another dad comedian who's got a similar joke. But if it's coming from my experience, then it's my experience. And I can tell you that joke. Makes sense. And, And the other thing about writing comedy there's a rhythm to it it's like a math equation it's almost like it's got to be there's a rhythm so as fellow comedians sometimes we'll sit in the back of the room and watch a comic do his act or her act and afterwards we'll go over and say hey when you did this this and this have you thought about saying this afterwards and they say oh that's cool let me try that out and similarly comedians will come to me and say that they go when you do this you should do that so we all know the rhythm now. Yeah. But for me, writing was probably the more challenging part of it. But now I feel very comfortable. Why? Because I know my voice. As a matter of fact, I try to challenge myself sometimes by sitting in the back of the room and seeing if I can write for other people. And if I can, that to me, if I give if I give what's it's called the tag to their joke, to their punch, to their joke, if I can give someone a tag and it works that's almost more of a sense of pride to me than giving myself a funny joke. Got it. Because it it makes you uh, multi-dimensional where you can now kind of uh, watch somebody and know what the next move would be. It's almost like in a movie you're watching saying the next line should be this. And if you say it before they say it, you know, it's like, hey, uh, it's it's an element of writing the script. Let let me ask you, in, in the game of sports, in basketball, in football, You'll see the video of Kobe Bryant doing all the shots that he makes, and they'll put it right next to Jordan. And it's like exact kick, same time, you know, turn, same time. And then you'll see Jordan stole the move from Dirk Nowitzki, where he goes out and kicks it out and, you know, the shot. Or, you know, you're seeing Booker right now taking a couple of the footwork from Kobe. And, and it's a very normal thing in a game of sports, right, that people do that. But stealing jokes in comedy, that's like the ultimate what is it with comedy and the amount of controversy sometimes you see 
when it comes down to somebody using somebody else's jokes? Where where is the you know crossing the line to say, listen, man, you took my joke, that's mine, that's not cool. You, should, you know the whole. I've had Carlos Mencia on before. You've seen the Carlos Mencia on Rogan back and forth from God knows how many years ago it was. Why is that so serious in the comedy industry? Well, you know, doing the technique for a shot is different, right? Because there's only certain ways you can shoot. I mean, you know, you're not going to have, uh, um, you know, Kevin Durant jump in, the, jump in the air to do a jump shot and spread his legs wide and, you know, make a funny face and throw it up and it goes in. There's a technique to it, right? So that's the technique. Similarly with stand-up, there's techniques to certain things. Again, like I said, there's techniques to being present on stage, if you look at a bunch of comics, you'll see the ones who are high energy have kind of a similar uh, um, way of presenting themselves. But the jokes themselves, that stealing that, the analogy would be, let's say in basketball, it wouldn't be so much, oh, you are doing the same move that I'm doing. But it's almost like saying you, you are, you know, you've been watching my press conference and saying the same things I say. Uh, or, or even going one step further, it's almost it's. I would almost say it's like you took my trophy, because because our jokes are are what make us. That's our story. I spent you know blood, sweat, and tears to write my act. My act is my act. Now, if you go, especially this happens, unfortunately, where a bigger act will go and see an unknown act and say, "Ooh, I like that." And then they'll go do that on TV. And now they've put their stamp on it. Yeah. And this poor kid who's been working, you know, uh, the, the working as the as the doorman at the club and getting three minutes of stage time once a week, he just had his whole act that it took him a year to build stolen from somebody and that person's doing it on TV. That is just a, a total no-no. And in stand-up, you know, it's closer to what, what they do with music when when a lot of musicians go, oh, you took that riff that I did and you put it in your song and now you're making millions of dollars. Uh-uh, ain't going to go. Um, you know, I looked up, you know, the in Michael Jackson, Mama Say, Mama Say, Mama Kusa, Mama Say, I looked it up and that was an African singer who had a song that said Mama Say, it was Mama Say, Mama Say, Mama Kusa. That's a whole thing. And it's funny because supposedly Michael was doing the song and at some point he started riffing because the song has nothing to do with Mama Say, Mama Say, Mama Makusa. He just started saying Mama Say, Mama Say, Mama Makusa. The song takes off. This guy shows up and goes, whoa, that's my song. You can't just do my song and your song. <laughs> so that's the thing. And and in comedy, listen, the, the one good thing, because matter of fact, early on, when I first got into comedy, I was talking to somebody. I said, isn't there a way for us to copyright our jokes so that nobody else can take them? And unfortunately, there is no you know, government entity where you could say, oh, here's my copywritten joke. You know, you can do that with your scripts. You can go to Writers Guild mm, of America. Not comedy. Comedy can't, but the, ah. the best the best thing you can do is get it out on a special. And once it's out on a special and it's there, and if somebody comes and says, oh, you took that joke from so-and-so, you go, no, I did that joke in 2008. Yeah, here's sense. the proof. And that's all we can do. So, so And by the way, by the way, one last thing, joke stealers, eventually we they get ratted out so the comedy that all comedians know who the joke stealers are so is, we, would it be fair to say it's kind of like you watch you know you see uh 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 they'll show joe biden and johnny carson shows a video of joe biden you know telling the same exact speech of a 
somebody in a Britain parliament says it or a even Ivanka Trump, when she gave the speech and they went and said Michelle gave the speech just a few years ago, similar to it. Is it similar to that when politicians kind of give the same? Would you would you use that as an analogy? Absolutely. And it was okay. Melania Trump. And it's it is it's plagiarizing. Trump, yeah, yes. it's, it's it is plagiarizing, especially yeah. if listen, the problem with comedy, by the way, is, you know, I always I always say I'm jealous of musicians because a musician can have a concert and at some point they can go. Uh, I'm going to sing this song from the Rolling Stones and they just sing a Rolling Stones song right. and they just say that was, and everybody knows it's a Rolling Stones song and they say, I'm going to do it. A comedian can't be on stage and say, I'm going to do an Eddie Murphy joke. Now this, this next segment is Eddie Murphy. I can't just do that. You know, that would be so um, awkward. I can see that part. You know, yeah. I'm going to tell this joke from, uh, you know, George Carlin. It's my favorite joke, he said, but I think I can say it better than he does. You know, yeah, I had a guy one time told me, he said, uh, I like your marketing strategy. I want to kind of use it myself. Do you mind if I use it? I said, yeah, sure. He asked permission. I thought it was respectful. I said, you can do it in Chicago. I was dressed as George Washington, and I had this event. I had my wife dressed as Lady Liberty, and, you know, we were acting out certain things. I came out as a uh, 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 General of Patton from George C. Scott, you know, the movie Patton. Yeah. And I did yeah. the whole five minute skit. It's like, I want to be able to do this in my event of Chicago. I said, go ahead and do it. Says, I said, what's your gift? He says, my gift is I get to see people who have come up with ideas, but I can do better than they do with the idea that they came up with. I feel like sometimes there are certain people in the comedy world that maybe in certain business are like, I can probably take that guy's joke and do it better than he's doing it. With the uh, with the platform that I have, I don't know. I think I sometimes yeah, I don't care. Yeah, I don't care how good you think you are. You can't take someone else's. First of all, there's 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 two sides to this. One is you're taking that poor guy's joke and going and doing it. Secondly, though, you have to live with yourself that you've stolen someone else's joke that isn't a, a sincere thing coming from you. So eventually, that's got to start eating away at your own sense of. <laughs> self-worth or your own sense of being a comedic um uh, a creator because it goes again it goes totally opposite to what i told you a second ago about sitting in the back and saying oh i want to write extra jokes for this comedian because i want to be able to tell people i'm good enough to write jokes for other people when you start stealing jokes you're saying i'm not even good enough to write jokes for myself i'm stealing jokes from other people and that's got to wear away at yourself self-worth and your self-confidence to go, God, am I a fraud? I mean, really, ultimately, I think that happens underneath, I you know, and that, so. I think in every industry, you're going to get exposed if you do that. There, there's ways to get exposed in every industry. I always say a bad idea always gets exposed. It doesn't matter. You can It can convince you for a minute, for six months, 12 months, eventually five, six, seven years later, people are going to say, this is not a good idea. I don't support it. And that happens in every business. Take, well, let me tell you this too, before you leave that, I was going to say, as a comedian, there was a, there was a comedian named Freddie Soto who was one of the funniest people I ever knew, and unfortunately, we lost him like 10, 12 years Freddy ago. Freddie Soto, Freddie Soto, S O T O. If you look him up, he was this Mexican American comic out of El Paso. Yep. He was a regular at the Comedy Store. He was a guy I looked up to, and he was brilliant. Um, and I remember one of the first times that I got a good um, encouragement. I was at the comedy store. It was late. It was like one one of those one forty five in the morning spots, and I didn't know Freddie was sitting in the way back because the room is very dark. Mitzi Shore used to make the room really dark and put lights in your eyes so it would blind you. And the reason was she didn't want you to see too much of the audience to feel self conscious. She wanted you to feel huh. like you're doing comedy into a void, right? And just just be you. 
So um, at that point, there was three people that were in the club that I could see on the side. And it was two nerdy guys with one really hot girl. And so I went on stage. I was newer to comedy, so I just started doing my act. And then two minutes in, I go, I'm thinking to myself, why am I doing my act? I, I turn to them. I go, I'm curious. How did you two end up with her? What's the story here? The next thing you know, I'm having fun with them. They're laughing. We're, I'm making jokes off of what they're telling me. I have a fun time. We call it a night. The whole club ends, and they leave, and the lights come up, and I see Freddie Soto was sitting in the back. So I go sit next to Freddie. And he says, hey, man, you're funny. I go, thanks. He goes, you know, he goes, I've realized comedy is not about bits. He goes, you're either funny or you're not. And he goes, you've got, you've got the comedy, the, the, the thing. And he also said, he goes, you know, if, if it's just one bit that's going to make you, then you're not, then forget it. So similarly, if you have someone, I've had people say, oh, so-and-so stealing a bit you used to do. I go, well, that's fine. I got a thousand other bits. And I'm going to keep writing. And if that, that's that person's problem. You know, I'm not so, because sometimes comedians will say, oh my God, he took my bit. And it's their end of their life. Yeah. I go, no, you better, you better have more than one bit. Yeah. You, you know? know, Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, said something very interesting one time. They asked him a question. They said, hey, so how do you feel about the fact that everybody's stealing your idea? You know, with this whole franchise model and what you've done with McDonald's. He says, you can take our system. You can take everything you're doing. You cannot take our mind and our heart away from us. We are very good in business. So at the end of the day, you're going to find out who the real business people are. Just like in your world when Freddie Soto said, you're going to know who's funny and who's not. You figure that part out. Here's a question. And Ray Kroc, by the way, I saw the movie. Ray Kroc stole the thing from the other guys. So from the two brothers that he bought it from. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. talk about that guy. That guy, you know, the two brothers didn't have a vision. They didn't want to scale. This yeah. guy wanted to scale and he wanted to be known as the founder and uh yeah you know it is yeah. what it is so but yeah. going back to a guy like you in every world you know we like to see redemption stories i'm curious to know what you're going to say since you're in this space redemption stories robert downey jr goes away for a few years he comes back he crushes it and we love that story you see it in sports a guy goes away he comes back he does very well for himself you 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 think a mencia has a shot of redeeming himself in the comedy world is it too late for him Gosh, I think with Mencia, like I think from what I've heard, I, I haven't run into him. From what I've heard, he's doing fine in the clubs and he's got his fans. The thing about comedy is you can, I mean, if you get if you get burned in the industry, it's hard to come back, depending on what it was. Is it pretty like, political or no? Is it a it's it's political, but it's also like what it was. So Robert Downey Jr. had addiction problems and yeah. he comes back yeah. and people are rooting for him. They're like, oh, we want you to do better, right? Yeah. But if you if you get caught for plagiarizing or stealing, unless and I'm talking about the, in the industry now, yeah. unless he were to come back and say, "I'm going to make a movie about a guy who lost everything because he got caught plagiarizing," and then he grows and he comes back and you know he realizes he's going to be himself, or he does a one man show about self deprecation, you know, self something, yeah, yeah self deprecation, yeah. but also like showing that there's growth. I mean, maybe then. Um, but the good thing about being a comedian or a performer that tours is your fans love you. I mean, you're going to lose some fans because of that, but yeah. you're still going to have some hardcore fans. I mean, Mencia is still a great performer. He gives a great show. So I'm sure that he's doing great on the road. I don't know about the redemption in the business per se, simply because of what I just said, yeah. unless if they come up with, I mean, listen, it's hard enough to make it in this business without 
having to have redemption because, you know, I've been doing this 23 years. I've sold like three or four different shows and this and that, but it's never gone to the, you know, to tell, you know, on, on air because it's hard to make it now much worse. If I had done something that had a black check mark against me and now I want to come back. I almost feel like you got to address yeah. that thing in your comeback. Yeah. I, you know, Kevin Hart and I were, but you know, when, when he came out with the irresponsible tour, I had him out as well. I think I had him out the year after you or two years after you had him. I don't know what it was, but were you 2017 when you came out and you performed? I, I did 2017. 2017. Yeah. I remember we were talking off air. The, the thing about when you came out, which was special, is the week before your performance, I remember we got a call and, you know, your your sister uh, uh, passed away, right? Which was yeah. a week. And we were having a conversation. My guy's like, Pat, this is what I said. Whatever Maz wants to do, Maz gets to tell us what he wants to do. It's his choice. And you still chose to come. And people walked, everybody knew, but within the first two, three, five minutes, everybody knew. And I said, like, this guy's a uh, one, a pro, but it was great to see you come up there and doing what you do with the audience. I remember when that whole thing took place with you, but we brought a heart a year later or maybe two years later. And he did the irresponsible tour and he kind of went up there and he talked about, listen, first time I messed up, I'm glad I messed up. But the second time I messed up, I really messed up. You know, he went up, just said, this is what I did. That's what I did. And you're saying take a page out of Kevin Hart's playbook to see if you even stand the chance to make a comeback. Yeah, I think you need to address the elephant in the room, right? So if I, for example, uh, whatever, got caught for embezzling money and I did, I mean, Richard Pryor is a great example. Richard Pryor set himself on fire trying to smoke crack. And then he went on stage later and did an act where he talked about setting himself on fire and he made it funny because he goes, you'll never run faster than when fire's chasing you and it's on your back and whatever he did, you have to address it. You have to address yeah. it somehow, either, either in a funny way or in a sincere way. You could go up to, if I had embezzled money, let's say I were Bernie Madoff and now I've gotten out, I'm doing standup. I better have some jokes about it yeah. or I better go on stage and go, look guys, thank you for coming out. I appreciate you giving me a second chance. I embezzled all that money and, you know, I, I, I don't know what got in it. Whatever it is, I apologize. I did my time. You have to address it because if you go on stage and yeah. you don't address it, then, uh, uh, you know, no one's going to – people are just going to be thinking about it the whole that time. That makes sense. I mean, you know, we'll see what happened there. When we had him on, I told him, I said, why don't you reach out to Rogan over the internet, Twitter. Send him a tweet and so why don't you guys get together. He never ended up doing it, but uh, who knows what's going to happen there. But it is what yeah. it is. We wish every one of these guys uh, nothing but the best, and hopefully they'll, he'll redeem himself. But Rogan had a uh, – we talked about Robert Downey Jr. earlier. Rogan had him on. I don't know if you had a chance to see that one when it was uh, Downey Jr. and him. If you haven't seen it. It's a great one. I mean, it's just it's it's very interesting when they they're talking to each other. Joe says, what's off limits today in Hollywood? And, you know, Robert starts kind of laughing and cracking up. Where are you going with this? And he says the one movie, Tropic Thunder. Right. He says, oh, yeah, is yeah. Tropic Thunder doable today? Can you do Tropic Thunder today? And Robert says, I don't know. You know, can you can you not? Because, you know, you know, acting like a different personality and color and all this other stuff. He says, I don't know if we can get away with that today. Uh, Maz, what is the, uh, is there any off-limit stories for comedians today? Are there stuff that maybe you could have touched 10 years ago that you're better off just not touching today? Listen, man, it's an ever-evolving world. I always say that. I think we need to grow as individuals. There's certain words that were said in the 50s that you can't say now. There's certain words that were said in the 80s you can't say now. 
there's certain words that would say five years ago, you can't say now. And I think on the one hand, you know, I have kids and they sometimes they show me and they tell me and they lead. And, and that makes me believe in the future because I go, wow, these kids are are progressive and they see a world where all the colors come together. And it's not about the colors, it's about, it's about your character, either a good person or a bad person, right? So um, I think that we need to grow. I think comedians, though, end of the day, we get to choose. You live and die by the laugh. So if you sit there and go, I want to tell this joke that's going to be talking about something that, let's say, is derogatory to women or is misogynistic or is yeah. Yeah. could be construed as racist or whatever. Yeah. You know, if you're that passionate about it, get on stage and try it and see what happens. Because the audience will tell you either they won't laugh or they'll get up and walk out or they'll laugh. You know, there's some comedians who push that envelope and still come around with a punchline that makes the audience go, oh, my God, I didn't see that coming. Um, and there's some a lot of comedians that have been, you know, canceled for things they said and the the unfortunate thing is nowadays on social media too you might just throw something out that you think you know very little about you might say oh whatever uh gosh it's so dark today uh blah 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 and use some terminology that might be construed as racist but you weren't meaning it to be that but then all of a sudden people are coming at you and you're going oh no you know so that's also a different thing because a lot of times people take things out of context and, and, and that's why I always tell people, I go, if you're about to go, I mean, unfortunately, social media doesn't do this, but I, I, I would say it to the fans of that person. If you're going to get upset at yeah. someone that you're a fan of, look at their full history. So if you know somebody who's been, let's say, an advocate for Black Lives Matter and has been an activist and has been vocal for uh, racial equality and all that stuff, and then someone says, oh, they made a racist tweet then look at it and go, oh, was that an intentional tweet? Was that a was that a mistake? And and don't judge that person off that one tweet. Look at their full yeah. story. But unfortunately, social media doesn't do that. Yeah, you know, the, the thing is, for, for me, like when I was in the Army, we would joke. And you'd sit there and you always had the funny guy in the Army. The Army's filled with funny guys and telling jokes. 90% of the jokes would get you canceled today on any given day if it made it out on YouTube. If it was heard, you're going to be in trouble if it makes it out. But I understand if politicians have to walk on eggshells. I get it. Okay, yes, you chose to go say you have the solutions to help a county, a city, a state, a country. Yes, you. every word comes out of your mouth, you're going to be judged for it because that's your job. I understand if a parent, fine, you're a parent, you talk to your kid in a certain way, that kid's going to remember it for 20 years. But a, a comedian walking on eggshells, like we got to have a place where somebody can get up and say what everybody's thinking about. Like, you know how, you know, hey, let me address the elephant in a room and I'm boom. And I was like, oh my gosh, you addressed it. Shit, that was kind of cool because I was thinking about it. If we can't address the elephant in the room, who the hell can? If comedians can't do it, you know, like, who else are we going to rely on to do that? Pastors? You know, no, you're ab listen, you're absolutely right. And if you come to the comedy clubs, we are, they are like, it's it, the, I think the place where it gets carried away is when somebody films it, puts it on social media, that person wasn't in the room, right. takes it out of context and it blows up. Cause a lot of, I've been at comedy clubs recently and there are a lot of comedians are saying things that could be construed in certain ways, but the audience for the most part is getting it. Let me you ask know? you, when you're doing it at the comedy club, do you guys always have it live with the camera on or do you guys say turn off the cameras? 
for the most part, uh, a lot of clubs don't allow filming. So if someone's filming you, oh, uh, really? someone will come tap them on the shoulder. No, no, we're not. You know, that's not allowed because also it's not about it's not even about oh we're afraid that it's going to get out and there's going to be backlash. But more importantly, if I'm working on my act so that I can put it on a special, sure. And some bozo comes there and puts it online, and now that thing's already out there. So now when I go to Netflix and go, hey, I got this great joke, they're going to go, well, it's already out there. So that's really the main reason why we don't want that stuff. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, I, I actually recently had an experience where I lost a potential job to uh, a retweet that I did because this company that was going to hire me, I retweeted something that had to do with the CEO of the company. But I didn't intentionally, I didn't even think about it. Like years, like a while back, someone had done some video and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Retweet. That's it. I didn't think anything about it. I didn't care about the CEO of the company. I didn't have any sort of, it was just that the the tweet that I saw was making a social commentary um, based on um, income inequality. And I said, oh, okay, I could be, you know, I'm, I'm for income in, income sure. equality. Sure. Yeah. And so a couple of years later, here I am about to get a job and they come back to me and they said, oh, you tweeted something against our CEO. I go, what? I don't even know what you're talking about. And they showed me that. And it was so ridiculous because I I just laughed. I said, I can't believe that this, like you just said, I have to watch my tongue when it comes to a retweet on something silly like this. And similar to what you said, I said, I'm a social commentator. I should be able to comment on what's on my mind. And yeah. unfortunately, we live in such fragile yeah. times where these kinds of things happen and you know it is what it is yeah for me with that part it's it's like let these guys leave these guys alone do what you got to do and uh offend all of us say whatever you got to say because god knows some people are thinking about it now of course there's certain areas you don't want to touch that's a little bit of a uh distasteful i get that but distasteful if you're so distasteful you're just not going to make it there's certain comedy i watch I'm like, you know what? That's just not funny to me. I don't I yeah. can't do anything with it. But so I guess some people find it funny. I would never go pay to watch somebody like that speak. But when I listen to Chappelle and Chappelle special comes out and he says, let me talk about abortion. Yes, you ought to have the right, but we should also have the right. You're like, oh, I never thought about it that way before, you know, or John yeah. Stewart comes out and says, hey, what do you mean this, uh, you know, uh, drug is not man-made and he does it on Cobell. You're like, shit, just about 12 months ago, anybody that ever said this on a video, every, every video was taken out, but he can get away with it. I want Stewart to keep having the ability to do that because he has the card of what? I am a, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just a comedian. I don't, you know, yeah. I'm just a comedian. I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Comedians want to act like they're dummies, but we know comedians are geniuses. You ain't no dummies. Comedians are small, but we need that. I think we need a little bit of that. And yeah. uh, the more it gets away from it. Yeah, that's why I was kind of like, is there anything you guys cannot touch today where you feel like you're walking on eggshells? You saw what Barkley said the other day. I don't know if you caught that. This was like a month ago when Barkley said, I don't like my job anymore. And he said, yeah. what do you mean you don't like your job anymore? He says, uh, half the time off camera, I'm being told what I can and can't say. What I just want to talk. I want to have a good time. I'm going to probably stop doing this in two years because I'm not having fun anymore. So right. when you try to silence everybody to that level as well, and it no longer becomes fun, then the guy doing his job is not having fun. And if the guy that's doing his job is not having fun, we're going to feel the fact that that person's not having fun doing their job. Anyways, that was pretty interesting perspective you uh, uh, sharing with us on what the market's like right now for comedians. So let, let me go a different angle for you. You're Iranian. I'm Iranian. Mm -hmm. 
you came right before the revolution. Do you remember the exact date when you guys came out here or no? Do you remember, like, I know it was 78, but do you remember the date? Uh, we came, uh, I think it was December of uh, 78. Wow. And yeah, yeah, December 78. And it was the coldest winter in New York. We land in New York and my we were going to try and live in New York, but it was so cold. My mom said, let's get the hell out of here. And it's funny because as my mom and dad later separated and divorced, et cetera, my dad would say, I was going to buy this building in New York that's worth $150 million now. And your mother told me not to buy it. I'm like, dad, get out of here. You know? December of 78. Wow. So yeah. do you actually have memories of living in Iran or no? Dude, my memories of living in Iran, you and I were talking a little bit about um, um, uh, Rocky. So one of my memories of living in Iran was seeing Rocky at uh, uh, um, like five or whatever the age yeah. was. Seeing Rocky, my father was a big boxing fan. So uh, we love Muhammad Ali. I love Muhammad Ali. One of the reasons I think why I do what I do is because of Muhammad Ali. Because I remember, Patrick, years later when I came to America, I always thought of Muhammad Ali as as this amazing boxer, yeah. but I come to find out he was an amazing humanitarian. And I remember driving on La Brea Avenue when I was working uh, in the advertising agency and Apple had this ad campaign called Think Different. They had Muhammad Ali, Gandhi, Einstein. People, Einstein. And there was a picture of that famous picture of Ali where he's punching and it's got his fist. And I'm looking at it as I'm driving, I'm an assistant. I'm making like $20,000 a year doing nothing. And and I, I see the picture of Ali. I go, oh, my God, that guy touched the whole world. And I go, God, I, I want to do something where I can affect people. And, and that, was one of, that was all when it was building up to that Joe Ryan moment. And, um, and I, just, I just, you know, I, I loved what he stood for. He had the belt, the championship belt. And he goes, I'm not going to Vietnam to kill the yellow man that I have nothing against. And I go, that guy gave up everything. So that is something to aspire to, 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 to live on your principles. So Muhammad Ali, uh, Rocky, I remember I had Spider-Man uh, comic books. Um, I, I just, I remember a lot. I was, it was a regular, you know, I don't Where'd know. You guys how you in Tehran, Where were you in Tehran, dude? Um, I think we were in the North, like the nice area of Tehran. My Gandhi? father was a successful, huh? Gandhi. I don't know where the area was, but I just remember my dad was my dad was a successful businessman. My dad, the closest I can uh, say is my dad was like uh, Vito Corleone in The Godfather. People that needed things would go to my dad; he would help them out. Nice. And uh, and I always thought like maybe my dad's exaggerating until when he passed away. I would run into people who'd be like, "Listen, if it weren't for your father, my family never would have gotten out of Iran. Your dad did this. Your dad. He was a very generous man. And so, you know, as a kid. You know, I mean, it was very Western because it was under the Shah. So we had a lot of Western influence. So as a kid, I just had a regular, almost American yeah. upbringing, you know? Do you do? Because I came, uh, uh, I was born October 1878. So you're 72, I'm 78. You're February 26th, I'm October 18th. Yeah. So I came uh, November 28, 1989, right after Khomeini died. Khomeini died is when we came. Uh, November, no, July 15th, 89 is when we escaped. November 28th is when we came here in uh, uh, 1990. We lived in Germany at a refugee camp for a year and a half. So you see Iran there, 
you leave Iran because of what's going on with the Iran revolution. Good timing on your dad's end, by the way, because at that time, I think the two men was still less than $20, 22 men a dollar later on. I mean, right now, it's ridiculous if you follow some of the numbers on what's going on. What, what do you think about what's going on in Iran today? You know, you see the climate, you see what's going on with water, you see them wanting the revolution, you see China came in and signed a 25-year contract, $400 billion. Uh, $400 billion. What do you think about what's going on in Iran today? My heart breaks for every young person in Iran. You know, um, I've seen this for so long. You know, the problem with Iran is it's been 40 plus years of what's been going on. And so you see this. I get people sending me messages, help us. I got no, I got nothing, you know. And and unfortunately, like I was just in Dubai recently and I'm looking at Dubai and I go, geez, Dubai had no natural resources and look at what they built in the past 30, 40 years. And I go, Iran had all these resources. Iran had and has so much um, uh, capacity of uh, brain capacity. I mean, Iranian students were coming to Stanford University to the electrical engineering PhD program. And their first year in the PhD program, they were saying, we've already studied all this stuff in our undergrad. And supposedly they were like some of the top students. And then the problem is those guys come and they stay. Why do they stay? Because... They want a better life and yep. they can find that here, but they can't go back to Iran and have that better life because of the government being oppressive. The government's oppressive against women, against homosexuals, against Baha'is, against a lot of people, against young people. Mm -hmm. And it's an unfortunate thing. It really is this totalitarian state and it breaks my heart. And the question becomes, well, what do we do, right? How do we help that? How do we help that come out of that? Now, one solution is to attack Iran like you did with Iraq and get rid of the leadership. I personally am not an advocate of war because I know that even in Iraq, they lost, I don't know, how many innocent Ira Iraqis yeah. died, right? So if you did war with Iran, you'd yeah. lose half a million, a million people, innocent people would have to die. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, I go, gosh, that's not the solution. On the other hand, I go, do you try diplomacy? In which case, a lot of people are against it. A lot of Iranian Americans are against it because they go diplomacy with this government is giving them more power and more strength. So I really don't know what the solution is. I'm hoping that the people of Iran are able to lead what I hope is more of an evolution than a revolution. Because, yes, I want this government to go, yeah. but I don't want bloodshed. Like, I mean, there is bloodshed already, but I don't want it to be so bad. So in all honesty, I just try, whenever I'm faced with any issues, I try to just show my support for the people of Iran. Currently, there's protests in Khuzestan uh, uh, because there's no water. The water's dirty. Yeah. Um, and I, I did a, on my Instagram post, I did, hey, I, I'm, I'm with the people of Khuzestan of and I want the media to cover this. And I don't know what the future holds, but it just breaks my heart every time I see the news coming out of Iran. The complicated uh, situation that's going on. By the way, did you ever follow Fereydun Farouk or no? Did you know his story? I know his story because a friend of mine, so I, I made a movie a few years ago called Jimmy Westwood, American Hero. I described that Jimmy as the Westwood. Persian. Yeah, I, I described it as like the Persian Pink Panther. It's a bumbling idiot who wins the green card lottery, comes to America and saves the day. It's a silly movie. I, I made it for like 12 year old boys and, you know, teenagers like it and adults think it's a little too raunchy. It's a silly movie. If you're looking for a silly movie, Jimmy Vestwood, American Hero. My co-writer on that is a guy named Amir Ohebsian. He had written a script about uh, Feridun Farouk Zad that was beautifully written 
and it won an award. The movie never got made because they never had funding for it. But um, what an amazing uh, character and what a complicated, interesting story he had. Very complicated. And the way it ended, I don't know if you know the whole story on how it ends in a hotel, uh, well, what happened to him. So last question I'll ask you before we wrap up here, since you know you, you made a comment earlier, you said the, when you studied poli-sci, you were curious about history because you noticed the link between U.S. under Carter and the overthrow of a regime in Iran that was pretty much a democracy following a lot of the westernized philosophy under the Shah. Why do you think when the word Shah comes up, you know, and how Iran was before, why do you think some folks bring negative connotations to what he did? Because I bet if I were to ask you, if, if I were to ask you, what did your dad think about the Shah? Is it fair to say that his assessment will be more positive than negative? Absolutely. I think, listen, the problem is we, people see everything black and white. They don't see the nuance of it, right? I'll be the first one to tell you as a kid in Iran under the Shah, I thought, oh, what a great country. And there was a lot of great stuff that was happening. We were modernizing. We were, we, you know, we were, we were someone, we were a country to be reckoned with in the world and headed in the right direction. Now, at the same time, I'll be objective and say, yes, under the Shah, there was Savak, the secret police. There was people who would disappear there was, um, you know, people couldn't speak, couldn't criticize the Shah because that's just what happens when you have a king of any country, you can't criticize that king. And so it was it perfect? No. Was it better than what's going on now? I would argue yes, because these guys who came and took over really brought in the dark ages. I mean, it got even worse. And so I think we should be able to talk about that and criticize the system before without necessarily saying, okay, now let's, okay, now we've done that. Now let's talk about the current system. And now let's talk about what's going to come next. Like, let's take Egypt for an example. Egypt under Hosni Mubarak was very oppressive um, and limited. And then they got rid of Hosni Mubarak. They had elections and this guy came in who was uh, a, a Muslim brotherhood guy. And it got even like as oppressive or maybe more oppressive. Sure. And then they got rid of him. And now the military dictatorship so the question becomes, I honestly don't know what the future of Iran holds. Living in a Western democracy, I appreciate the Western democracies. That's why the last four years, every time there was an attack, and I know our people were, were divided on Trump and this and that, but anytime there was an attack on the media or anytime there was an attack on some of our institutions that existed, whether it's the judiciary or whatever, I always thought, wow, we're chipping away at what makes us a democracy. So I've already seen that game play out under in Iran where we got a, we got away from what was already a it was already a, a shah with some freedoms and then we got to this thing that's even darker because we really like now it's completely controlled so I'm just someone who's an advocate for people's voices for democracy and I think that we should be willing to it's kind of like the conversation we're having right now in America about critical race theory. A lot of people say, we shouldn't talk about the bad things America did with slavery or the Native Americans. I go, no, you have to know the good and the bad and be willing to admit that those things happened. You know, it's almost like saying like, oh, wow, uh, you know, uh, you know, if you had a father who was abusive to everybody, oh, that guy was such a funny guy. Yeah, but he used to abuse mom. Yeah, but he was funny. Well, he used to hit all the kids. He was funny. Remember that time he's, he stole all the money from the neighbors, but he was a funny guy. Let's not talk about all the other. Let's, no, you should be able to look at the good and the bad. And the Shah brought a lot of good, 
but there was also stuff to criticize him for. So I think, you know, we just got to keep, uh, uh, you know, an open mind with that. And you, and again, not to compare the Shah with these guys are the worst. The current regime is, I mean, anything called the regime is usually a bad thing. And they really are. They really are. Um, I, I, I have zero uh, uh, sympathy for the leaders of the government of Iran and, uh, and, and all my heart again goes back to the people. Can you see yourself ever before, uh, you know, while we're still here, do you see yourself ever performing in Tehran, like Kabaret Tehran? Do you ever see yourself <laughs> in I, I would love to. The only issue that I have is I perform in English and I'm more comfortable performing in English. So even when I go to the Middle East, yeah. the, the, the audience has knows English and they come and they laugh. Sure. So I would have to find an audience of Iranians that, that speak, speak English, English well enough. Makes sense. You know what I'm saying? No, it makes sense. I mean, you you know, it, because the the to to be able to pull out words and get technical, I'm sure you have to have a depth uh, vocabulary. And I'm I'm not saying you don't. When I listen to you speak Farsi, you speak very eloquently. I don't, but I can see that taking place with what you're at. Do, do you see any any? Uh, concerns with today like you know my my biggest thing is the following here's what i struggle with. i'm curious to know what you think about this iran so my mother she was a today i don't know if you remember today you know yeah, what of course. Yeah, 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 is? Yeah. how do you describe what it communist. is communist communist, communist. in iran yeah, two yeah. days were communists yeah my dad in iran he was an imperialist so he was a shah yeah. you know he loved the shah he thought the shah was great my mom thought shah was terrible and you know, it was, uh, they got two divorces in the span of six years, in the span of 20 <laughs> okay. years. They got married, divorced, married, re-divorced 20 years. Beautiful. Later. And uh, probably the best thing that ever happened. It was probably good for the world that my parents got a divorce. <laughs> but, you know, you see, uh, uh, you see how there is 99 things to talk about how great America is, but we spend... 99% of the time talking about 1% of what's bad in America, okay? Mm-hmm. That's what happened to Iran. You yeah. got, you know, women could vote. Women could work in anywhere. Women weren't forced to get married at the age of 8 or 13. Like, the marriage age changed, and they could go out there and have their own identities. They had a voice, and then now it changes, and they don't have the voice. You know, you could yeah. marry a girl at 13 years old, and you're 42 years old, and Allah says that's okay with it, right? You can do certain things that's going on like that in Iran. So do you think sometimes over, and like you said, CRT, you said uh, uh, history, there are people yeah. that don't want to talk about the fact that slavery took place in the past. I don't think the fact that people have a problem. I went to school, and I studied slavery. History taught you what slavery was 30 years, but I think it's the fact to say, you're this, you're that, this is what happened because your family is this, because your family is that. Do you see the playbook of America going in a direction where we're spending more time thinking about what's wrong with America rather than what's right with America? No, I disagree. I don't think that's the case. I think that we, most people know America is a great country. And if they don't, they should travel outside of America and you'll see America is a great country. I just think that there's room for improvement and I think that what you just said is interesting because you're right. We talked about slavery or Native Americans a little bit in, in school, but they don't go into depth in it. And it's good for us to know in order not to not repeat the past. And I honestly don't think because I've heard some politicians say, oh, you're going to make the white kids uncomfortable. I don't think teachers are in classes going like, hey, white kid, your dad did this. No, it's saying a good teacher would say, let's look at the history of what we did. There was good white people. There was bad white people. There was good black people. There was bad black people. There was black people who were probably selling out the other black people 
so that they can make the money and sell out these other people. So I think it's knowledge is power, right? We should definitely know what's going on. But listen, it, you can say whatever you want about America, but this, pa this past election, we had the highest election, election turnout ever. So that's a good thing. We should work more and more towards that to get more and more people engaged, more and more people aware of what's going on and more and more people voting for their own interests. And as you said, let's concentrate on making America a better place. Let's try and attack the homeless problem. Let's try and build on infrastructure. Let's make voting easier for people. We have the highest technology right now. You had people in the administration who were in charge of voting and said this was the most secure voting election ever. And you went to judges, you went to several judges, and you look at all that and you go, geez, at a certain point, we have to say, yes, this was secure and it's going to be more and more secure. And let's make it more and more available to people so everyone can participate. So when the next election comes around, whether you're a, you know, uh, a grocery store clerk or you're CEO of a bank, you're going to go and vote because you want to be involved in part of what you just said. This country being such a great country that those two people one of them's making a billion dollars a year. One is making, you know, twenty dollars a year. But they both have a vote. Let's 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 work towards that. And so, I don't think by looking at your faults, you're going in that direction. I don't think that's the case. I, I, but I think overemphasizing, which is what the media is doing twenty four seven, is getting America to have more bickers and fights than ever before. And I, I'm surprised you don't see that trend. When you said a good teacher. Uh, uh, you said you said a good teacher wouldn't say this. So I think what you are also saying, Moz, is the fact that we should get rid of bad teachers. We should also have a opportunity to keep bad teachers and allow bad teachers to get fired. Yeah, would you agree with that? At least some bad teachers should get fired. Well, I'll tell you what. You know how you get rid of bad teachers? How's you that? start paying teachers more money, Time. and then you're going to attract the top. You're going to attract more people. Who I'm, are going I'm into for paying more. I am for paying more and firing the ones that don't you know, don't give their yeah. best. Yeah. I'm make, make teaching a, a, a desirable job so that people will, people with high capacity will want to be there. So, you know, um, listen, man, I, the divisions are there and unfortunately, uh, but, but I see, I see love, you know, I see people do, I, I, I'll be honest with you, Patrick, I do what I can on my own terms. Like I see you on doing stage, it. on stage, I do get sometimes political and say my opinion, but I try as much as I can. When I'm in public, I am so, I go overboard nice nowadays. If I come to a door, I let the first the other person go first because I know everyone's you know under a lot of stress. We've had two years of this pandemic and this and that. So I just go overboard with being nice and courteous. And I think if more of us do that and pay it forward, perhaps the world will smile a little more. I, I hope you guys don't get silenced, man. I hope you guys can do what you can do as comedians and you don't walk on eggshells because your industry uh, has the ability to unite America. I just, today, I made an announcement this morning at 8 a.m. and I sent the video out and I said, uh, I'm willing to give $5 million if President Trump and President Obama are willing to sit down together for a long form interview to have a conversation together because I think both of them have their own way of loving America they have different ideas. Why don't you guys talk to each other for two, three hours and see if we can figure out a way to unite? This was just uh, probably two hours before you and I sat down together. It's got a lot of uh, uh, traction already. We're already getting a lot of uh, things that are coming back. I think we need to be able to hear both sides. Whether you agree with it or not, I think we need to be able to hear both sides.
And Patrick, if they don't agree to sit down, you should hire two impersonators and give them $50 each. Save yourself a lot of money and just do it. <laughs> it's a good idea. Buddy, appreciate you for coming on. How can people find you? If they want to find you, what's the I'm best way for them to go? It's at Maz Jobrani, M-A-Z-J-O-B-R-A-N-I, at Maz Jobrani on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, all across the board. MazJobrani.com is all my tour dates. I'm currently on tour. And my podcast is called Back to School with Maz Jobrani. So tune in and, uh, and, and follow me. We're going to put all of those links below, folks. If you want to go follow Maz, click on the description. All of those links will be below. Allah, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you, truly. Take care, brother. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Industry comedy, walking on eggshells, Iran, state of America. Curious to know what you took away from this interview. And if you enjoyed this interview, I got two other videos I think you'll like. It's my sit down with Kevin Hart or Carlos Mencia. If you've not watched either, click on those interviews to watch. And take care, everybody. Bye-bye.